Well, welcome to another exciting episode of the Development Hall Podcast. This is actually episode number 94. I know we've been off for a while. I think August is actually the last time, towards the end of August, the last time an episode actually showed up. But in this very special episode, I am actually in the same room as Ed. I got into my car and blasted... Uh, down the highway from the border up at uh, Sarnia and Port Huron in Michigan and then went whipping down I-69 until I got to some little US-24 and then US-25 and ended up at Ed's place in, yep. uh, in Eagleton, Indiana. Mm-hmm. So Ed, this is – also got to tell people we're in a, we're at the co-working space that Ed uh, normally spends his days at. So there's a bunch of like weird background noise and it's kind of echo in here. So if you hear like the, we're in a room that's right next to the bathroom. So you'll probably hear the, uh, the hand dryer, um, come off and on. So sadly we can't do anything about that, but yep, we're actually recording it in the bathroom. <laughs> well, the acoustics in the bathroom are always great. This is why I, the reverb is always awesome. This is why people always sound so much better in the shower is all that reverb, uh, hides yeah. the indiscretions of your shitty singing voice. It's a slapback reverb. Yep. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, yep, 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 yep. We had a fun lunch, didn't we? Uh, we did, yeah. We went to, what's that place called? The Black Sparrow. We went to the Black Sparrow, yes. And uh, we were talking about this. Don't worry, people. We're actually going to talk about technical stuff in a minute. But we want to talk about this Hungarian mushroom soup that we had. And Ed and I were both struggling to, like, if we wanted to explain to somebody what this soup tastes like. I I just don't know. know. It's a mushroom soup, but it wasn't a cream of mushroom soup. So it had real mushrooms in it, which is always a bonus instead of like weird reconstituted ones. Yep. Um, I don't know. And like it, to me, it tastes like it had a little bit of tomato in it and there were some interesting spices and, um, you know, I, I'm just not sure how you would describe it to somebody else. It's the thing we're struggling with. It tastes of the Hungarian woods. <laughs> As I was saying before, you know, Hungary used to be communist and corrupt and now it's just corrupt. That's really the difference yep. in taste. Yeah, there's no ideology behind yeah, this. Soup. No, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I was, I mean, I was, uh, I came down here to visit Ed back in April and unfortunately had to cut my visit short and come yep. back home, but I'm able to spend longer here. So we plan, we're going to record at least one episode. We might squeeze another episode in if we can find some time. So t- today, the main thing I wanted to talk about was something I spoke with Ed um, about last night was the idea of like what happens to you like career wise and job wise when things that you want to do and accomplish uh, will take a longer time frame than what most companies these days seem to be willing to want to do. And part of what brought this up is, and I'll, we'll add a link to it in the show notes where um, a couple of days ago someone shared uh, an article written by Michael Feathers on his awesome blog where he talked about his experiences when he worked at Google from like 2006 for a number of years and how they actually um, got a good testing culture going at Google, which, you know, you would think Google has unlimited time and unlimited resources that they could just force people to get with the unit testing and and all those good practices when in fact uh, Mr. Feathers goes and describes just like how much of a struggle it was to get developers um, to adopt this. He he made a very interesting analogy that all sorts of like sins are hidden by the long shadow that Google, the long shadow of Google's successes. So for all the good things that Google does um, really can obscure 
dysfunctional things at the working level. You know, in, in most cases, we only ever see the good outcomes of companies, and they work very hard to minimize the, expo- the exposure to the public of the bad things that they do. And it was just really interesting. Uh, he described the setting up of of um, testing teams and uh, testing certification. And uh, you should read the article. It's it's fascinating. But the thing that really struck me was that when it talked about how they got people together and they called what they they created what they called the Google Testlet. And what it turned out to be is most people know Google has this thing of the 20% time, one day a week. People are allegedly allowed to work on whatever they want. But of course, what it really is, they're allowed to spend one day a week working on something that benefits Google that's not directly related, that doesn't have to be directly related to their job. So right. Michael Feathers and a bunch of other people decided they wanted to get wider adoption of testing practices. And when they talked about that, it took years, calendar years, to get this thing uh, set up. It led me to talking to Ed last night um, over a beer at his place. Like, I wonder if I've gotten to the point in my career where I'm wrecked working for people because the type of things I want to do, this sort of testing advocacy, like that sounded like right up my alley, exactly the sort of thing I wanted to do. But how many places are going to let you run with something like that where you say to them, hey, there's this great thing I want to do for your company and it's going to provide tangible benefits but it's going to take three to five years to implement. I mean, what do you think, Ed? You think you're going to get laughed out of most job interviews, or yeah. like, like what do you think? Like, no, I don't think that most companies are going to probably pursue that. Um, I think it's hard to make that case just because of the time frames you're looking at, and I think it would be challenging to prioritize that over other uh, lower-hanging fruit. So, yes, I think that would be quite a challenge. Because one of the interesting things that he talked about in that article was two things that they did. They they decided that they were going to really experiment with how they were going to communicate yep. information to people. So they actually came up with a great idea of doing testing tips. And this is, this is actually from the article, so I'm not making this up. They posted one-page notes inside Google Bathrooms. Mm. And about uh, a different topic related to testing. And then they created fake Google ads at the bottom of the pages that were links to things if people wanted to go check them out. Um, so, again, like that's like you'd have to go way, way out there to be given permission to experiment. But the other thing was they decided a good approach to, to raise the overall level of, of testing was to have people inside the company be testing mercenaries where they would get embedded with a project and stick around with a project for three, four, like three to six months to analyze what they were doing and what the best strategies were for that team to get them um, going down the road to having all their code unit tested because the, 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 the main thing that Michael Feathers talked about in his article was you look at things like the heartbleed error um, and uh, there's one other thing that he mentions there that these are all things that could have easily been caught by unit testing, not integration testing or functional testing. Right at the unit level, they could have very easily caught bugs like mm. this. And so, but just looking at that time frame, like honestly, it makes me think I'm just wrecked. Like, how could I ever? Like, you look at it in terms of you need a you would need a company that's thinking along those lines of horizon uh, on that sort of time frame that they're going to be around right. from five to ten years. 
And then on top of it, they're going to commit internal resources to allow people to float around from uh, project to project and then empowering those people to have permission to like force and push and tell people, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do testing and this is our path and we're going to create an internal certification. And then every team can be said to be certified at, to test at, at a certain level. It just, I don't know, Ed, it just sounds like... I could never find a place like that anymore, especially if I want to work remote on top of it all. It's yeah. like, I don't know, like, have I literally painted myself into a corner because of the things that I want to do? Well, I don't know. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I guess it comes down to you and what peace you have with doing certain kinds of things and not doing other kinds of things. But I think that it is going to be, you are going to find that there's going to be a lot less companies who are willing to do that. Mozilla is probably one of the few ones that would because they're going to be thinking, they're thinking what's it going to look like 5, 10, 15 years down the road. And But there aren't a lot of companies that have been around that long. Most companies don't stick around that long. Most companies don't think along those terms, don't, don't think of those time frames. And, uh, yeah, I think it would be difficult. But I, I don't know. I mean... Surely there's things you can find to do that will make you sort of happy, I hope. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't mind the stuff that I'm doing at Mozilla. I was telling Ed that part of the uh, companies like Mozilla and, and other places, um, sometimes there's a sense of, like, comfort where so mm. they create a nice, comfortable environment for you to work in, um, and so you can get kind of complacent with what you're doing. And so these days I'm really trying to find stuff like at Mozilla, we have quarterly goals and we have bonuses based on whether we hit those our quarterly goals and we discuss the goals with their managers. And I mean, that's a pretty standard thing for a lot of larger companies that have incentive structures. And every quarter I try to pick something that makes me uncomfortable to do or, or not even uncomfortable, but like annoyed to work through. Mm. And so... Um, and so I found that sometimes I need a little bit of that like friction of like rubbing up against other people's uh, preconceived notions and getting them to change and telling them, no, we need to do this differently and just keep like abrasively slamming up into that idea until we get some type of movement. Either they change or a bunch of shit gets sheared away and the next time we can try and make that thing work better. Right. So just to keep me interested, because Mozilla is a great place to work and you can, it's one of those places where you can do as much work as you want or as little work as you want to keep the people who manage you happy, right? So there's no shortage of interesting things for me to do if I choose to pick them up. So that I found that, you know, that friction, that little bit of... I don't know, maybe a tiny bit of antagonism and a tiny bit of, I don't like how we're doing this thing and I want to change it. And here's why I want to change it because it leads to better outcomes down the road. I found I need that um, to stay interested in the job or else I'll just be ready just to tell people one day on Twitter, I'm done with Mozilla. Who wants to hire a really angry, experienced developer to do some stuff for them and tell you you've been doing it wrong and why. So, um, so you'll create your own antagonism if you need to. Yes, that's what I have found. I actually, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing, but I just find that's how it seems to be going. Right. Uh, given the type of jobs that I end up doing, where helping people with testing stuff and creating tools and trying to insert yourself into existing processes, you find all sorts of dysfunctional stuff and all sorts of ways of doing things that are dumb and non-intuitive and can very easily... Uh, be changed and with not a lot of effort 
um, get a much better outcome and getting an even better outcome will require some effort. So I don't know, man, I, I still like doing dev work. I wish, I wish there was enough money in uh, collecting papers for conferences that I could work on yeah, right. open CFP, but at a price point, it's like, yeah, I would need like somewhere between 500 and, and a thousand conferences to pay for open CFP. Yeah. And there's not even, a, there's not even 500, um, PHP conferences, never mind 500 programming conferences that would plunk down money for a paid management app. So I don't know. Maybe I guess they would pay more. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe this is one of those dreams that will remain a dream. As I keep telling my kids, don't let your dreams be dreams. And they hate when I say that to them because it's just don't me. It's me trolling them dreams. saying, well, if you really want to do something, just go and do it. Stop, stop talking about it. Right. So if you really want to drive a car at 13, well, drive guess, a car at 13. Well, you know, of course there's always, con- there's always constraints, but. Legal constraints. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just legal. Like, like I, well, I tell my kids, Hey, everything's legal until you get caught. So. Yeah. Of course, one of the of course one of the good things is that my car's manual transmission, so my twelve year old daughter can't just hop into it and uh, and start driving. So it's a little bit of insulated uh, context there. That's why you bought that manual, right? Well, I, I bought it because it's the nicest car, and I did check with with my wife and say, "Are you okay with me buying a car that you that you can't drive?" And she's like, "You wouldn't let me drive it anyway." So I'm like, "Well, there is some truth to that statement, <laughs> but just go and get uh, yeah, it's manual transmission, and she can't drive it, so." There you go. That's okay. That makes it your own. It does. Right. It means I never have to adjust the seat. I always get mad when I, like, take the car somewhere and someone else is driving it and the seat's not where it used to be. So it just, it's, it's like the warm toilet seat problem. You know, it's like. Is that a problem? Well, I Wouldn't mean. would you like a warm toilet seat? Well, it, it's a question of would you prefer the toilet seat to be warm? Like, it'd be the difference between, like, a car seat where it's warmed by a machine or warmed by a human. Mm. Warmed by a human is more creepy because you're, like, some, some. Some person's naked butt was just on my toilet seat. Yep, and it's warm still. You so, can think about that every time that uh, that hand dryer goes. Yeah, off. I'm not. I'm trying not to think about that actually. Okay. There, there it goes go. again. <laughs> Put this around it and create a really weird echo. <laughs> so I don't know, Ed. Like it's because I know as you've been talking to people about doing work and stuff, it just it makes me feel like you make all these choices and then you end up. You have to decide, like, how much do you want to hold to your principles? How much do you want to hold to, I only want to work on stuff that I personally find interesting. And for some people, yeah, you can do that. But for a lot of people, they are not in that position. So on the one hand, I feel kind of um, weird that I can sort of pick and choose what I get to do. But at the same time, it's like it's like I'm throwing all these things into uh, a big bucket. And the, and the filters I start applying in the sieves... I'm throwing more and more into there, and they're more finely, finely graded. And when you shake it, I might just be, when I shake it, the only option is the place where I'm at already and that there is no place else to go to do the type of things that I want to do. And that's, I don't know, sad. I don't think it's scary, but like disappointing or slightly depressing sometimes when you realize the place where you're going to, where you really, where you can do the things you want to do is the place where you are right now, and it's not really any place else. Right. Or maybe that's really good. I know lots of people would say it's it's a good thing. Um, yeah. Like I said, Mozilla's been a very good place. Two years I've been there now, so um, just a little bit under two years. And they've been treating me very, very well and put up with a lot of my nonsense. Yep, most of it. Most of it. I haven't been called in front of HR officially yet. Not officially. Yes. Yes, understood. <laughs> understood. Understood. Yes. So you had a good trip down. I, I did. Down. It took me about, uh, it's about six and a half hours of 
of straight driving, and it took me about well, that's what that's what Waze said anyway, and I tend to drive a little bit faster than what Waze says. So it was about maybe just a little bit more than seven hours, I think, to get down here. Um, I was really thankful I had that Nexus border crossing card because the border crossing to get into the U.S. Um, in Canada it was just a mess. They were actually their uh, traffic was actually backed out onto the bridge. Oops. To go across, hmm. which is very, very rare. So for some reason, uh, on a Thursday morning, there was tons and tons of traffic hmm. um, trying to cross into the U.S. from Canada. And because I have that Nexus card, and we'll put a link to that program. Seriously, anyone who is in the U.S. or Canada, if they travel free, if they travel across the border frequently, they need to get one of these cards because it just speeds up the travel process right. so much. But yeah, I just went right through it. There was one person in line in front of me. I got asked uh, one question, and I was talking to the border person for less than 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then I was across, whereas I probably would have waited an hour, hour and a half to get across if I didn't have one of those cards. So seems pretty good. Yeah, that does seem pretty good. Yeah. What'd they ask you? Uh, they asked me where I live and where I was going and who I was going to see when I was there. Mm-hmm. And I said where I lived and I said I'm going to go visit a friend that lives uh, near Purdue University in uh, West Lafayette, Indiana. Am I still saying that correctly, or am I still butchering the pronunciation? Yeah, it's, it's a little butchered, but I'll, yeah. I'll allow it. Lives in Eagleton, and, uh, and they're like, "Are you bringing anything in?" So no, just personal stuff. And they're like, "All right, have a good day." And they handed me back my card, and that was it. There you go. That was it. Did you get to jump your car over the crossing? No, like the General Lee. That would be cool, though. Yeah. If you can, it's a different line if you jump your car across. Unlike last time when I came back, my car actually died when I was talking to the border person on the coming back into Canada last Oops. time I came here. Yeah, I had to push my car across the border. That was not fun. That was not fun at all. Yeah. So, what else do you want to talk about, Ed, other than like the depressing idea that, you know, the things that I want to do take like things I advocate for take like three to five years to implement, and no one wants to give, no, it seems unlikely that other companies would give me that type of uh, runway to do things. Yeah, you're probably screwed. Well, I don't know. Do you wonder? I wonder, though, as part of that's the scope of like, well, trying to establish a culture of something at a gigantic multifaceted corporation that has tons of different development teams. Uh, you know, I think that that probably changes that that factor a lot. It, that changes that time frame quite a bit. Um, whereas if you were doing it at a... Let's even say a smaller place where they had like maybe 30 to 40 developers instead of like a yeah. thousand. Or, or even look at someplace like Mozilla. It's 1,200 people and mm-hmm. imagine a significant chunk of those people are working on the browser itself, and some people are working on the services associated with it. Um, I mean, maybe a smaller place. Maybe if you could say twelve to eighteen months, get it all straightened out. Yeah, might might be doable. But again, I'm stuck in Canada, so again, that nice funnel, the nice filter, has to be Canada. Yeah, like what you can do. And, yeah, yeah. Right. that's always the thing that I thought uh, um, made it really tough to do the type of like testing consultancy work I wanted to do was that mm-hmm. I'd have to do it in Canada because visa issues are so rough and especially now current US government policy seems to be to make it as difficult as possible for people to get visas to come and work in the US so that would uh, e- even for even under the the North American Free Trade Agreement where I would I already know for a fact I qualify for a visa because I have the right set of skills, but even that, there's no guarantee. They're talking about just at a moment's notice, those could all be revoked 
especially if the free trade agreement gets renegotiated or canceled or whatever, just all those visas will just poof, disappear, and all these Canadians who are working in the U.S. won't be allowed to come back in. Well, that'd be a shame. It would be. It's it's, uh, interesting how tightly integrated everything is and how... Few people who get who are involved with politics understand how tightly integrated everything's become. They don't understand the consequences, the like real consequences of the rhetoric that they're throwing around. Oh, I would agree with that. Yeah. So enough about depressing career stuff. What do you want to talk about this episode? I don't know, man. I'm just here. <laughs> just I'm just barely keeping a, my head on watching this thing try to record and hopefully (laughs) praying that it works. You're doing the Marshawn Lynch thing. I'm just here so I don't get fined. I'm just here so I don't get fined, son. Both teams played hard, my man. (laughs) Both teams played hard. Marshawn Lynch is a very interesting dude because everything that I've read said that he has saved up all his money he got for playing, Mm. and he just uh, lived off of the money he got for endorsements. So... um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm a smart dude. So few of those. I mean, I was talking to somebody about this at the co-working space here earlier, how many professional athletes like are completely out of money within you know less than five years of no longer playing. Their money's all gone, which is just yeah. which is astounding when you think about the sums of money that some of these people have gotten paid. They should be able to, with minimal effort, live forever off of the money that they made. It's it's fascinating. That I guess they get themselves into a lifestyle that can only be sustained by constant infusions of millions of dollars a year. Well, yeah, if you're making a certain amount of money and you start spending that money at a rate comp- that's consistent with the income that you're making, but your income is only at that level for, let's say, four years, mm-hmm. you have to, you just can't do that. You know, the money's gone. And I think what happens is that there's lots of people who spend at a certain level and then like they might get a mortgage or something that they can afford as long as they're employed. But if they're employed, they're only going to be employed at that level for like two, three, four years mm-hmm. on average. Um, that's, I think it's particularly football players who have that issue. Uh, careers tend to be longer within other professional sports. Yeah, I think the average professional football player is like three years or something. Yeah, it's, something like that. It's the, I mean, of course, this is average. There are ones who have much longer careers, but sure. the, the lack of guaranteed contracts is always a huge thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's just uh, it's like I remember, what was the name of that guy who played for the Atlanta Hawks? Kenny Smith? No, or Kenny somebody. Anyway, I remember when there was the last time there was a strike in the NBA, so not the most recent one, the one before that. Mm. He was like actually complaining he was going to have to sell some of his cars to pay his bills. Oh, boy. And it's like, wow. It's like, you look at it go out, like, you emphasize, like, how quickly you can get out of touch with reality of, you know, economics for people. It's like, yeah, you're you're suffering because you have a high level spending. You're not getting any money coming in. Like, you're moaning that you're going to have to sell a car, one of your, like, 50 cars that you owned to, to pay some bills. It's, it's kind of weird. Life is hard. Life is hard. So, Ed, any uh, any speaking appearances coming up soon for you? The only thing that I have scheduled is Grumpy Conf. Really? Nothing between now and, nope. and March? Nope. Wow. I have uh, made a decision for my personal wellness to not speak for a while and to not travel. Because you were just at, out in Seattle, right? Not that yes, long ago? Yes, Seattle. And that Seattle Ward Camp 
talk that I gave. I gave a talk at Memphis Tech Camp or Tech Camp Memphis one weekend, and then the next weekend I went to Seattle for WordCamp Seattle, and then that is me being done for a while. And because I think that that's what I need to do to maintain my wellness. Sure, man. I mean, I know I've cut way back next year. The only I've committed to one event other than Grumpy Conf, I've committed to one event. Um, I'm going to commit to one event for the spring and one event for the fall. And that's going to be it. Right on. I'm going to stick around the house a little bit more next year. Got to travel twice for work and one other time in February for a, uh, for a side project. But, um, yeah, I spent almost three years of going somewhere once a month, getting on a plane and going somewhere. And that, uh, yeah, you can go hashtag first world, you know, first world problem on that. But it does grind you down, all that uh, constant travel. I don't know how my friends who are developer um, advocates and evangelists who travel everywhere, how they just don't, like, completely implode and uh, never venture uh, never venture out on the road again. That's a t- even even just once a month, which is quite a bit if you look at it. Yeah, um, that ground me down. And I think a lot of that is also due to um, I am not an optimal size for airline travel, so there is a lot of that. That uh, probably doesn't help. A lot of that playing into that with a lot of having the anxiety of making sure you get a um, a proper seat and. I have to jam stuff into a carry-on bag, and my clothes are like one and a half times the size of normal people's clothes, right. so I can't bring as much stuff. Like people, oh, I travel for two weeks with just one bag. I'm like, like, dude, my pants weigh more than your bag does. So, yeah, uh, right. um, yeah definitely a commitment to, to travel less. Uh, I can get it. I can get my, I can get my travel needs met by just even just doing the Mozilla stuff twice a year, like next next year, like going to Austin, Texas in a couple of weeks for the uh, all-hands meeting down there, and then San Francisco in July, and then Disney in December of 2018. And so the family's going to, uh, wife and kids are going to come for that one so they can enjoy Disney while I'm busy doing my Mozilla stuff. But Are you going to be in that Epcot globe? Uh, I've been there. Uh, but the I don't, but geodesic dome? I've been there, but no, they tend to do, there's, a, there's two resorts, the Swan and the Dolphin, that yep. are like, uh, near the Epcot side of things, those are nice. Uh, they are really nice, and they're like uh, like across like a little, just like a little walkway that's like I don't know, maybe like like maybe two foot, maybe at least a football field in length, maybe mm-hmm. about that, maybe hundred yards, hundred fifty yards between the two passes. of them. Yeah, yeah, go go hail mary to the other side, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, so they put us. They have all the meetings in one place, um, and they have the two hotels, and you know that's the, the interesting thing about trying to organize these means that you need a place big enough that we can that all of us can be there like you need 12 to 1500 room for 12 to 1500 people right in in one spot and so that kind of limits where we can do it when i first started mozilla i was fortunate enough to go to the go to one of the all hands in december and that was in florida at the same place down at disney so and you need a place that'll accommodate people in costume (laughs) why mozilla it's not that big on cosplay are you sure? I'm yeah, pretty sure. Okay. I mean, I don't know. I don't remember seeing people dressed up, but maybe maybe a lot of developers are wearing a costume anyway. Yeah, man. The swag this year, this time out, is a coat. So I don't know. I'm wondering what type of coat we're going to get. Coat? Yeah, coat. Not Coke, but a coat. 
maybe a puffy down vest type coat that has like it Mozilla, will. big Mozilla logo on it. Or I'm hoping it's a members only jacket actually because that would be kind oh, of Oh, yeah. Sweet. Well, like a satin members satin only members jacket. only and Firefox logo. That would be sweet. Back. That would be sweet. I would wear that everywhere. Everybody wears the same thing. And tell people to shut it. Though they did send us an email yeah. telling people who had requested um, – like 3X and larger jackets, which of course I need one that's 3X, yeah. telling, warning people that the material and the colors were going to be slightly different from what mm. everyone else was getting. And if people had a problem with that, to like let them know and we can cancel your order. And I'm thinking, dude, a free coat's a free coat. I don't cancel care. it for everybody. <laughs> it's like, I don't, I don't care if it looks slightly different. It's like, I'm just, I'm just glad I could get a free coat. There you go. There you go. Right. Because I can be bribed to, to say nice things about yeah. people all the time. I wonder what she'll get in Disney. Uh, the big perk that they gave us were wristbands for unlimited use at the park. Oh, I thought it would be like a character head that you could wear. <laughs> no, that would be that would be really, really weird. Uh, Hi, I'm Dale. Yeah, I'm Chip. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a reference most of our listeners won't get. So nope. uh, it just shows how ridiculously old we're getting. Yep. Um, yeah, they gave everybody wristbands mm-hmm. so they could go um, the fast pass one, so you can just go on all the rides and stuff. Yeah, really cool. That's pretty sweet. I like that fast pass. Yeah, I remember years ago when I went, they were just starting to do it. So you would like go to a ride, and you would like press a button, and it would give you a little ticket, and it would say like when you could go on that ride and usually it was like a couple hours yep. from that time so you go like plan all your stuff go here go here go here and then just go off and try to occupy your time until your ability to go into a different line because uh, they had a separate lineup for all the fast pass holders but now they did it all um, digital and they had a guy on uh, who spoke to us from Disney who explained how they developed it mm-hmm. and all the experiments with the hardware and what they were trying to accomplish and the number of people who died in the process I don't think anyone died in the development. What's, what? <laughs> anyone died in the development of a little wristband to allow you to check into a ride. <laughs> see, the worst part about this is that you can't see that Ed's like sitting across from me, completely stone faced as he uh, as he says this stuff. I know it's. I joked to him at lunch. His, his new medication must be working really well because his wit is as sharp as ever, and he's <laughs> and he's delivering stuff with a completely straight face. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, I'll do my best. Yeah, the the uh, post-communist soup at lunch was post-communist good. soup. Yeah, that was good. That was good. Anyway, I'm in intense therapy, so that's going okay. An intensive outpatient program—that's what I've been working on. Uh, yeah, if people, I don't think I don't know if you necessarily want to rehash what happened here on the podcast, but I guess people follow you on Facebook and Twitter. Got a little glimpse, yeah, uh, into what happened. So I don't know if you want to go into it or not. It's like all the other stuff. Whatever you want to do, it's cool by me. Well, as long as I'm going to start crying, probably a little bit. Oh, so if you're, if you're comfortable with that, yeah, go ahead, man. I okay, mean, that's I fine. can I can just close my eyes. Yeah, all right, yeah, just just walk out of the room. <laughs> like, I'm going to go get a drink while Ed spills his soul. Need some so. coffee. Yes. Um, yeah, so I had a really my, my anxiety and depression got really bad, and um, I was having some some really worrisome suicidal ideation, which is when you think about suicide and you have images of that or you start thinking about that. And that was a thing where I knew something was very wrong and I happened to have a doctor's appointment coming up. So I went to my doctor that for that appointment and I talked about what was going on. 
And he said, I think that you ought to go to this. There's a local place here in in the area, um, which is basically a a, 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 a unit that, um, well, they actually have a couple different units, but for in, both inpatient care and for uh, outpatient. And so I went in and I was in inpatient for about six days. And then um, I was, after I was out for about a week, um, I went and took and, and started this intensive outpatient program, or IOP, uh, which is a three nights a week, three hours a night uh, deal, uh, where I serve a group therapy session that you do. So I've been doing that for about the past four weeks, and I'm going to be doing that for a little bit longer. Um, in the middle of it, I, uh, you know, I, after going to the hospital, I decided that I needed to step away from my job um, that I had with uh, a company and that they were totally cool, um, no problems with them. Uh, it just was not the right thing for me to work on at that point. And so I have a new gig lined up now that I'm going to start in a few weeks. And uh, hopefully that's going to go a lot better. And I'm going to be in a more stable place and a, and, a, and, a, and a happier place to sort of regain sort of a lot of that confidence and that, that stuff that I've had going on. Um, the biggest thing for me has been confidence about my work and stuff like that. And that's been really, I've, I struggled with that a lot. And so I'm going to be working a lot on that. On that process, that's and that's that could be that's a really scary thing because you start wondering like, can I ever get another job again? Like, am I ever going to be able to hold one down and not like lose it on it? Um, and that's a scary that's a scary idea to think about. But uh, for me, it was you know it was that's that's just what I'm I'm dealing with right now. And the really important thing was that when I needed to get help, I went and got it like I needed to. And so that was you know. That was that was the important thing, and uh, so yeah, so that's kind of what's been going on with me. So that's a big reason why I'm like I'm, I've sort of backed away from a lot of things. I'm trying to really unload things off of my plate, and so going out and speaking is not something that I really think is healthy for me right now. Um, you know, I've done it 65, 70 times over the past five years. That's probably enough for a while. Um, I'm still working on OSMI stuff, but it's important that I get a sort of a stable job and something that I can do uh, regularly and, uh, and then, you know, go, go ahead with those things. So they make a lot of uh, that. That's just where I need to be right now. Yeah. So there. <laughs> so there. <laughs> Just a weird, awkward pause at the end. Uh, you know, it's interesting because the like I knew about some of the stuff that was that was going on with that because of course I talked to him and I talked to his wife and other stuff too. And uh, um, I didn't say anything online because it's like this is like. But if we go back to the very first time when you decide to talk about all this stuff, the mm -hmm. infamous podcast where you talk about your struggles and how all this stuff led to OSMI, uh, for me it was always like. If it was happening to me, I would be okay with talking about it because I'm usually pretty open, pretty transparent, um, because I believe uh, that the things I am willing to talk about um, help other people. Um, but, but nothing that I do uh, 
has really has any stigma in society attached to it. I mean, people just, I've talked about this before. I've been called a clown and a phony and a fake by people and laughed at because of my desire to like want to have a less stressful working life and only want to work four days a week. And, and my recent uh, change in policy for uh, what conferences need to do to get me to come out and speak, uh, speak at their events because that has changed. Um, but at the same time, I could be very transparent and open about what I'm doing because there was uh, there was really no personal cost to me because I could just ignore and these days I can just ignore and tune out the people who are critical of what I'm doing because they're not I, I don't give a shit they're not providing any value I'm I'm much happier to to work with people who respond positively to what I'm doing but nothing I've ever done is even remotely on the same sort of scale as as the stuff that that you've shared because. Like, again, when we talked about this, Ed is not lying when he had that quote there where I said, dude, we do a comedy podcast, sort of, and this is a pretty heavy, it's a pretty heavy topic. Um, so it's interesting that both some of what happened to you recently had me reevaluating the things that I wanted. It's a naturally you respond to things in your environment. It's, it's interesting that, that all your experience that led you to this idea, can I even, like, my thing is, like, can I work in a place that's going to do the things that I want to do? Because, again, I talk about there's things that I want to do, and I work very hard to find places that will do it. And your concern is, like, man, will I even ever be able to work yep. again? So um, I, I've said I wish that you and I worked at the same place or could almost go together to places as a team because I think... Uh, um, uh, I think it would be beneficial to both of us that I could help you through some of these rough patches because I wish I lived a lot closer. I live, um, I live, uh, you know, um, 500 miles away, mm. and I would love to come down here more often. But it's a serious logistics thing, and I have to tell people uh, I do talk to Ed all the time via text, but it's not the same. Um, and I really try to be super supportive of Ed. And I like to come down and I like to talk to Ed in person. I talked about it on Twitter earlier and I was not lying when say it could have been six months since I last actually was physically with Ed. And it feels like, oh, hey, good to see you today. It was just like like yesterday mm-hmm. or the day before, even though it was six months apart. So I just, in many cases, I wish I was around to kind of help. Can't make I can't make your problems go away because they're never going to go away. But I wish I could do more to help you to smooth out. No, I appreciate um, that. Smooth out the rough parts. Yeah. It would be interesting for you and I uh, to work together, but I don't know if I don't know if the stars will ever align yeah. uh, to make something like that happen. To actually work in the same place, working on the on the same things. My desire for remote, my distance from Ed, the type of things he and I are interested in doing, um, they've diverged um, quite dramatically. They were very similar when we first started doing the podcast, but I've gone this way and Ed's gone the other way, and. Um, it's made clear that it would have to be a really unique circumstance um, for find someplace willing to take the two of us on and unleash us and let us do what I know that we could do to help a place. It would be very interesting. Yeah, I think that'd be cool. That'd it would be, be cool. cool. But yeah, I or or if working together would ruin, yeah, <laughs> ruin our friendship. I don't think I actually don't think it would, but um, uh, it would be very interesting. Yep. Uh, yeah, the jobs that I looked at, I didn't even. I I had, didn't even look at a job that was remote because I just felt like that was not what I needed. 
Um, I needed to be around people and be able to interact with them directly and stuff like that. And that's that's no criticism of remote. That's just what I need right now. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that one of the reasons why remote has worked out so well for me is the fact that my family was around. That I could go see my kids, go pick them up from school, mm-hmm. and now. Um, and, you know, my wife's been home not working for a year now. By choice, I told her she had a terrible job. It's like, anytime you want to quit that job and come home, come home, it's, it won't have any impact on our lifestyle, not really. Um, I, think, I think if I was home alone all the time and, there was, and I was working my 9 to 5 and there was nobody there to talk to, even, even just like, can't discount even the ability to talk to one of my kids, just to actually talk to someone else um, and get out of my house, go pick them up, walk with them, talk to them, find out how their day was going, have them ask me, because they do ask me how's my day going and and other stuff too, and they pretend to be interested in what I do. And um, that was huge. I think if I was like, with you working remote where you would be at home and there's nobody there, it's just you and your cats or whatever, but they can't talk back, so it's not really the same thing. They'll just throw up on the floor. Yeah, they'll throw up on the carpet like they did... uh, this morning when I was at Ed's place, I heard them meowing and then there was a bunch of nonsense that went on. It was nonsense. Uh, but yeah, we talked about, uh, you know, yesterday about Ed and remote. And yeah, definitely, I think uh, you work remote, it's a very different mindset. And I think, I don't think it could have worked for so long if I didn't have people around for part of the time. It's like, it doesn't even have to be coworkers. It's just that I could get a break and get outside the house and go actually interact um, with people, I've said to people time and time again, if you got into programming because you thought it was a way to avoid working with people, you're not going to last very long in, in in this industry because to gain any level of success, you need to interact with other people and convince them of your ideas and mm-hmm. collaborate with other people to move those ideas forward. The, the day of the lone developer... Uh, in the darkened room, cranking out something beautiful and then unleashing it on the world. It's it was almost a myth from the beginning, and it it certainly does not work that way today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's little spots that I can think of. There's still places at Purdue where there's some of that stuff, but yeah. I think for the most part, it's it's pretty much yeah. You you're on teams and you have to figure out how to do stuff. I mean, and the culture has changed too, thanks to things like I think uh, something like GitHub is really the like second order consequence of GitHub has been um, projects require collaboration now because it's so easy to publish stuff, but you have to pay essentially to hide what you're doing right and behind private repos so people are can just crank stuff out there and other people can find things that you're working on and collaborate and and push them forward. Uh, been getting a bunch of work done on OpenCFP, but a bunch of that work has been kind of setting priorities for the project. And then other people are stepping up and submitting a ridiculous. Like I found out, I remember I was telling you that there's some gentlemen over in the Netherlands who have been doing a ton of ton of submissions. I found out what that. I finally found out today what that came out of. Um, it was DPC, the Dutch PHP conference that you, oh, okay. that used OpenCFP, and they did a bunch of custom stuff. And so now he's now. Uh, this one person is turning all their custom stuff into more generic and submitting all those things as pull requests. So we just gained a bunch of gained just a bunch of really cool functionality that some other third party implemented on top of OpenCFP, and now they're giving it all back. Right in the in a non collaborative environment like that, I would have never seen if if GitHub didn't make it so easy no. to to share that stuff, I would have never seen it, or I would have gotten like an email with a bunch of patches and stuff in it and I would have to sift through it all instead I can just kind of look at what they're doing and look at the commits and say hey, this looks good or I don't like this and then just yeah merge it in and boom 
huge, huge uh, contributions from someone I've never met in person and maybe will never meet in person, but it's awesome that people can do that. It just shows you success as a programmer these days, you really do have to be able to work with other people or else yep. it's just not going to work. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. It's absolutely the case. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Hello. <laughs> just people don't see I'm like waving my hand at Ed because Ed is just like staring straight ahead at me. And it's, I'm not going to lie, it's making me kind of uncomfortable because I guess weird. I guess I don't really have to look at you when I'm speaking yeah, know, for right? the podcast. It's just, yeah. I'm very animated. And Ed can tell you I'm talking and my hands are waving around. It's just yep. kind of how I normally talk. And Ed is just like, like a monkey. Like staring, like, like a, oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. And, like Ed's, and Ed's just, I they called him Coco. I don't think I've seen that well, one. That's too bad. Yeah. They sold Carlton, Carlton George Coco. Well, and what's the reason for that? Because he because he was acting up and just throwing his hands around. Oh, so they called him like Coco the monkey. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I still remember. Yeah. He wanted to be called uh, Hambone. Hambone. Yeah, George, I always remember from Seinfeld. The funniest thing with George was where they said if if he worked as if he worked as hard to find a job as he was working to keep his unemployment benefits, he would have had a job already. Yeah. Right. <laughs> The ridiculous, ridiculous level of stuff he went through, offering to like date the date the daughter of the person who was his caseworker for yeah, his that was awesome. I don't know if a show like Seinfeld would succeed today. Maybe as a web, you know, it probably would have been like a web series, little things, Maybe. little things on, uh, little things on, on YouTube. I don't know. They got Curb Your Enthusiasm is pretty successful as a show. But is it successful because Larry David has some level of notoriety, or does it work because it's a funny premise? I think it's because it's a funny premise. Yeah. Um, although it is on HBO, and I doubt it's like the highest rated show on that per- on that network or anything like that. So, I always thought it was kind of weird that Seinfeld was so wildly universally successful, given that it was in a lot of ways a very dark program. I wonder if it's because people, uh, um, like, I didn't find the characters on Seinfeld to be particularly likable. That's the thing that always nope. struck me is like a bunch of really selfish yes. people doing whatever they wanted and never really thinking about the consequences yes, of their accurate. actions. Yeah. So maybe that appealed uh, to people. The, the audience wanted to see um, people like that. Um, yeah, I guess. Apparently enough of them did. Yeah, because I, 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 I've said to people, I don't really like television series where none of the main characters are likable, where like I can't, um, when I feel like I don't care whether any of them succeed, mm-hmm. um, it starts to bug me. Like uh, like Six Feet Under being an example of that show. My okay. wife really liked it, but like about halfway through it, I realized that none of these characters are really likable and they keep making a bunch of horrible mistakes and they seem really, they seem really, uh, I don't know if it's right, non-repentant, I don't know how you, uh, unapologetic, not not unrepentant about it, like they understand they have a problem but they don't really want to change, they're not actually doing anything ever to change, so it's like the same things over and over again and I guess that appeals to certain people but like when I watch a show or stuff like that over a long time, uh, like I want to root for Something that cares. Like I liked, I liked, um, I liked The Sopranos because mm-hmm. I felt like I could root for Tony. That even though he was a horrible person, he was ridiculously flawed. And there were times where he actually tried to work on his problems. To I mean, I 
can't imagine what it would have been like to pitch that show. Let's say we have a mobster who's in therapy, and the show is about all his adventures in between therapy sessions. Which, if you look at a very high level, that's kind of what the, that's exactly the, what the, show the early seasons of The Sopranos yeah. was like. And then he, and then you could see as he stopped going to therapy, things got worse and worse yep. and worse and worse for the character. But I always felt like uh, I always felt some sympathy for Tony, not a lot of sympathy for the other characters because some of them were just outright evil sociopathic people. But even though Tony was very much that way, I always, the, the writers were able to successfully instill in me some sympathy for a really vicious criminal. And everyone else, like when, when characters got shot and died and whatever, never bothered me, never, I never felt anything watching that happen. Sometimes it was like, oh my God, I'm glad they're being written out. Like, like stuff like that. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not going to have to, I don't have to see that character on the show anymore. But I like to be invested. I like to feel like the main characters are redeemable, that you can kind of relate to what they're going through. But yeah, Seinfeld is just like, they were all really annoying and superficial. And I mean, but that's people, people like that. Maybe Friends was like that, same way too. Wildly successful show where the characters were really superficial and not interested in changing their not interested in in trying to address their flaws and become better people it's like nah, they just kept doing the same things over and over again yeah i'd say that was accurate about friends too yeah. uh i really like it's always sunny in philadelphia which is sort of like if you're t- going to talk about unrepentant characters that's like the ultimate yeah, I've only watched a few episodes of that show, um, but the ones that I've seen, yeah, they're exactly like that. I just, I just can't get invested in a show that where I don't like any of the characters. They, yep. they, they're just all they. Be, those types of characters all become interchangeable. It's like you can just swap, plop this character from this show into there, and there would be very little. Um, yeah, I like my characters to be redeemable. They can be assholes, but if they if they're actually working on not becoming an asshole, that becomes much more interesting to me. Maybe there's a lesson in there for myself somewhere. Maybe there is. Maybe. Let's think about that, won't you? Think about if Chris is really an asshole and whether he's really trying to become a better person because I'm sure there's some very different opinions from people out there. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. <laughs> and on that note. And on that note, uh, you think it's a good place to stop because we can record another time and get another episode in the can while I'm Yeah, we can record another time. Uh so, as always, thank you for listening. Uh, these days, no sponsors, but we do encourage you, if you do like what we're doing, you can go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash devhell, where for as little as a dollar, you can show your never-ending support of the podcast. For a dollar, you can help us out. For two bucks, we promise to uh, read any emails uh, you send us. No one ever does, so maybe we're doing yeah. a very poor job of... I thought it was uh, more money than that. No, no, it was two, and then for five... Uh, dollars uh, an episode you get to be a sponsor and we will do a sponsorship read but for two um, bucks we would read people's emails and answer them so yeah go god for god's sakes throw us two bucks so we can read your email i will ed, ed will do the uh ed will do the sponsorship readings, but i'm going to do the emails if they ever come yeah out. so as always thanks for listening and we'll talk to you folks. good night man.